You're listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast, your home for the best of science fiction and fantasy with a twist. Whether you prefer your stories with dragons or aliens, your beverages shaken or stirred, fill your glass, relax, and join the conversation with your hosts, sci-fi and fantasy authors and proud Tipsy Nerds, Natalie Wright and R.S. Dabney. Welcome Tipsy Nerds to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast. I'm Natalie Wright. Your host, and along with me, as always, is my world-traveling, amazing co-host, Robin Dabney. Hey, Robin, how are you today? Hey, Natalie, I'm great. Always good on a Tipsy Nerds recording day, so yeah, always fun to see you again once exactly. a month. <laughs> and talk with you about books, and I'm so glad I have someone to talk to about the book we're talking about today. I could not do this alone. We are talking about Parable of the Sower by Octavia E. Butler. It was first published in 1993, but the story begins set in 2024. When she wrote it, it was near future. For us, it's very near future. It's next year. Fascinating book. And I'm glad that we get to talk about it because there's a lot to say, I think, Robin. I like, I think many people first came across this book after the last few election cycles in politics. And I heard this this title being thrown out and like, you must read this. And when the handmaid's tale, the show came out on Hulu or wherever it came out, I kept hearing parable of the sower. So I've been wanting to read this for years. And now that I read it, it's like, Oh no, it's too real. Put it back in the box. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I'm glad yeah. we're, I'm glad we've read it. I'm glad we're discussing it. And like you said, I'm glad I have someone to talk to because it's, it's, it's deep and heavy stuff. <laughs> yes. Yes. This is just FYI. This is not a beach read. This isn't like, Hey, no. I want to go drink my ties and read. Do not read parable of the summer in that situation. <laughs> No. So Robin, why don't you do a little setup for our listeners who haven't read Parable of the Sower? What is the story about? So the story is told from the first person point of view with a character named Lauren Olamina. Um, and it's mainly told through like epistolary devices. So daily journal entries that she's she's keeping track of sort of her her notes and thoughts on what's happening in the day to day, but she's also developing this new religion that is kind of the central piece of the story. And as you said, it starts in 2024. We are shown a world where climate change has sort of ravaged the world. Economic disparity is everywhere. There is large gaps between the haves and the have-nots. Drugs have ravaged society. Basically, even the lower middle class people are having to live in walled communities with glass and barbed wire to protect their homes, which are constantly being broken into and lit on fire. There's horrible drugs, there's murder, there's rape. It's kind of all the stuff that, <laughs> like, in 1993 when she wrote it, I'm sure the people with with foresight, which is usually what science fiction writers have, um, could see, but other people thought that will never happen. But it follows... Lauren's journey from this home where she's figuring out how to survive in this new world. And then as her world falls apart and she's sort of cast out and has to figure out actually how to survive outside the walls and the protective glass and figure out who she is, what she wants, and sort of what her plan for humanity, her new religion, which is called Earthseed, is. And so this is that story. I think this is the first book in a in a series. And so 
this is laying the groundwork for what I can only imagine is a world that continues to get worse and worse. (laughs) And Lauren getting deeper into this new religion that she's created. Great setup. I mean, it is an absolutely brutal world. And Octavia Butler's style is very almost like matter of fact, very like her delivery. It's very straightforward. It's not flowery. She doesn't pull punches. Mm -mm. And because it's being told in the first person, it's very much Lauren just saying, this is what happened. Mm -hmm. This is what I see. This is what it is. And she doesn't um, like filter herself from the truth. Um, And it's extra jarring because she's, it opens and she's 16 years old and right in the first chapter, I don't know if I was expecting like a little like handholding, but right in the first Mm -hmm. chapter, you know, they're going outside and seeing like dismembered bodies or like charred remains or a woman who is like bleeding between the thighs and just like walking around in a daze. And it's like you said, she tells it in this matter of fact, but it's still like, that almost makes it creepier. It's like, well, this is just the way it is. It's sad. It sucks. Like she, she doesn't want this for the world, but it's thinking of the 16 year old who's just like, well, this is normal is, is really jarring right from the first page. (laughs) Right. It's interesting too, because the main character, Lauren, this is all she's known. Mm -hmm. So she's old enough that she was born after the walls went up or she doesn't remember a time before her gated community became a walled community. And they're trying to, her father, who was a professor and very educated, he's also a preacher for this small community of 11 households. They're trying to maintain some semblance of like the life that her parents knew. But Lauren has never known what that would be. And the story opens, she's recalling a dream that she had. She is is recalling in her dream that she's talking with her stepmother about the stars. And see, Lauren, because there's not all of the light pollution, she's seen all these stars. And Lauren is like, this is great. We have the stars. And her stepmother's... But yeah, we used to have city lights and I'd trade city lights for the stars. Mm-hmm. The city lights we can't afford anymore, but the stars are free. So we just get stuck with the stars. And it's 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 interesting and it sets up, especially in hindsight, it sets up exactly all of the themes, you know, to come in the story. So yeah, Lauren, there's this great tension between her and her father where she respects him so deeply and she loves him so much, but it's a coming of age story too. So she's mm-hmm. sort of fighting against, I'm 15, I'm 16, I know more than you guys do. And anyone who's raised a teenager remembers those years. Um, and, you know, she's trying to say, but dad, you know, what, what will happen when all this falls apart? And he's like, just keep your head down and keep going. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So there's lots to talk about with this, but I was really, the opening chapters, I was so drawn in. And there's a lot of like, so much of this book is a, is not about religion, but has a lot of religious undertones. Her father, like you said, is a is a Baptist preacher, um, and she is developing this new religion and this new idea of who God is and all of that. And in the beginning, I feel like I think it's chapter two or something. You get this fantastic like philosophical discussion about God and religion, and I had no idea that's what I was getting into. But I I loved her thoughts on that, and I I, I loved that it was also coming from like the world she lives in now. So it's like the God of, you know, the old Testament God and the God from the time when people were living how we do. 
didn't fit for her in this world where it was only change and chaos and um like you couldn't sit there and believe like oh we deserve this or we were destined to do like he god doesn't fit in this world <laughs> this new world right. I, and I, I feel like she is trying to figure out like grappling with that and analyzing it and i loved that throughout the book all of her like philosophical pieces on on religion i found that really really an interesting piece for me i did as well another fascinating thing that's in the story is that the main character lauren is got a disorder that where she's a hyper empath. So the idea put forth here by Octavia Butler, and this is really maybe the only piece that's really sort of like sci-fi-ish about the book, is mm-hmm. the concept that the main character's mother was a drug addict. And at the time in the story, the new drug of choice was the drug, I think she called it the Einstein drug or something like that. But this drug that her mother got addicted to and eventually died from gave Lauren the side effect of being born with this genetic anomaly where she, and the author's very clear that this is a delusion. It's a delusional, psychotic situation where the character believes that she empathizes so strongly with other people's pain and pleasure that she can feel it. And when she's a young child, she would call that she used to actually bleed when other people would bleed. And then she got her period, she says, and that sort of stopped. But wow, what what a cool and interesting thing. And so I have two, I have a thought on that but also a question for you, Robin. So Okay, because I had a question for you yeah, on that, okay. about your thought. Uh, yeah. like, so, the, so. so the thought that I had was, this book would have been more fun to read if she had really given us a little bit more of the pleasure because the I mean, character is saying sex, right? If she's having sex with a gentleman, with a fella, mm-hmm. She's feeling her pleasure, but she's feeling his pleasure too. And I'm like, okay, you know, if you had given us a, a little bit more of that here and there, that might have given us a little break from the from the heavy, from the heavy. But um, but it's like, well, that would be cool to uh, try to imagine uh, feeling both both people's pleasure. But the question I had for you, Robin, is why is this in the book? <laughs> that is so funny. That's the question I have for you. Oh, shit. Neither of us know the answer. I wrote, oh, I, I, I have written down, what, what did you think of the concept of hyper empathy <laughs> and what is its role in the book? So <laughs> I, let me think about this because I, I was expecting you to answer and I was like, I'll just, <laughs> I was expecting I'll just you to piggyback answer. off her. Like Robin's um, smarter than me. <laughs> she always no. has better concepts. So I was hoping she would do the answer. I was, I I thought on this a lot because it's, I have a couple pieces to it. One for me, it was a little underdeveloped Agreed. because I I didn't fully, it felt like it was really well-placed in the beginning and then fell off a bit throughout. And then we were just reminded of it every once in a while because she needed to keep that thread going. I like the concept. I thought it was super cool. It's also important because you know, in this world, when they're out there, they're traveling, they're being attacked. They have to defend themselves. They have to kill people. And if she kills somebody, she feels it. She passes out from the pain. So it's actually very dangerous for her to have. So like from like a plot device, I understand in that regard, it's a little more dramatic and whatnot ups the stakes. But I feel like she was, there's there's gotta be more to it, like with what she was saying with this hyper empathy. And I don't know that I just from reading the book, had enough information to figure out exactly why it was critical to the story, other than just 
upping the stakes. Perhaps that comes later because she's afraid to tell people she has this because they could use it as a weapon against her. I I was trying to figure out maybe this is something that she plans to develop a lot more in the later books and just had to plant it in the first. But perhaps you have something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do have a couple of thoughts. I agree with you. I felt that I I would have liked her to develop it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. There was also a thought that I had at one point in the book where when you think about empathy, you certainly can have physical empathy, but there's also emotional empathy. And Mm -hmm. Lauren really doesn't have emotional empathy. She Mm -hmm. can be kind of direct in a way that can be hurtful or scary to people. Mm -hmm. And if she had more emotional empathy, she wouldn't necessarily do that. But she's not feeling other people's fear, their emotional pain. She's not Mm -hmm. really empathetic in that respect or hyper empathetic. Yeah, And she's very clear that it's only pain. And that then brought on even more of this question in my mind of why is this writer? It's clearly intentional. There's no way Octavia Butler didn't. Mm-mm. think that through why did she choose to have a character only have physical hyper empathy not emotional hyper empathy and then there's a point in the story where the main character and this is partly in that philosophical conversation where where she's developing this these ideas about her religion but she's talking about basically that like if more people could feel the way other people feel maybe they wouldn't do the things they do mm-hmm. Right? Like if I feel the pain of hurting you, but the thing that was odd for me about that then was, okay, but why stop at the physical? Because so much pain is emotional. So that was just a question. And I don't have an answer to that. And I don't feel at the end that I got an answer to it. Yeah, that's a very good point. Because like, at the end, she starts to trust and, and help more people along the way who need help. But for most of it, it's like, I don't care that this person needs help. I can't help them. They're a danger. They're, like, there's a, a, like a negative of empathy, <laughs> right. um, which is probably part of what she's trying to say. But I don't right. have all the pieces to that puzzle yet. So this is one I guess we throw out to our listeners, too. Absolutely. If you've read this, like, what are we missing here with the hyper empathy piece directly related to physical pain, not emotional pain? Like, right. do you guys have those of you who have read this or who do read it, you know, come back and and share that with us. Cause I'm, I, I, it, I didn't have it all figured out and still don't. So (laughs) she calls these people that can feel this and she's not the only one. And as they're, she journeys outside of the enclave of her, of her childhood, she meets other people who are what they call sharers. So they're sharing Mm -hmm. other people's pain. Right. And they're particularly vulnerable as the world is basically America is a third world country and in the worst possible sense, you know, meaning like, uh, like when we think about places that are overrun perhaps by drug cartels or where the, the societal, like police aren't policing people, they're taking bribes and, you know, you have to pay to get police protection, that sort of thing. That's a world that she's living in. Anyway, she, uh, these people are vulnerable to becoming enslaved people. And so this is a seed, though, that she's setting more towards the end of the book that you can see where she's setting this up for the next book, which does make me wonder if you read the next one, the parable of the uh, talents, like if there's 
you know, more development on this. So yeah, readers, listeners, like if you have thoughts, we want to know, because it was driving me a little bit crazy that like I didn't, couldn't figure out why this is in there yeah. and what it really means. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. Let's dive on to the, the, the piece you just mentioned too, with the, the, the modern slavery too, because that was like a very important piece of this series that was just being set up in here. But I thought that was also so interesting. And I think like a realistic fear for people to have, even in our modern world, like, you know, in the U S we've made it to where our corporations like have more rights than people. We're like, we're really setting it up to put all the money into the hands of a few people. And then we will have no choice, but to basically, you know, I forgot what the word is where you work for this company and you buy everything from the company shop and you're basically in debt for life and they own you and you were just a modern slave. And they started to set that up in this story. Uh, but it, this was one of the things that made this creepy for me is I was like, oh my God, like yeah, <laughs> you're seeing Amazon. this or <laughs> yeah, yeah, any of those or even like, uh, like in our big cities, we have these explosions of people who can't afford homes, who don't have work, who are living in tents, like on every green space in a public park in a city. And it's, it's like, you just see this world actually becoming, uh, you know, and a lot of them are not dangerous or violent or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But like, all of this stuff happens incrementally. And so it's like, I I don't know, I this book just really hit home in a creepy way for me. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, you know, this was published in 1993. She's looking ahead like 30 mm-hmm. years and damn, like too much of it has come to pass or is feeling that way. The drug yeah. epidemic in America, the opioid epidemic and the drug epidemic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when I was coming of age, it was like a problem for urban places. I grew up in a more rural or, you know, suburban setting not in a big city. And the idea there was, oh, that's something that happens, you know, in the inner city. That's not something that's going on. But that's not true anymore. If it was ever true, it certainly isn't true now. Mm -hmm. You know, rural Ohio, where I grew up, that's the heart of the opioid epidemic and prescription drug epidemic. And that's what she was writing about in 1993. Yep. writing about the growing disparity. And one one of the things I think that's brilliant about this book and that I love in relation to other dystopian novels, you know, if you read things like The Hunger Games or Divergent, which I've enjoyed all of those sorts of stories, there's more like the idea, or if you play the game Fallout 4, you know, it's more the idea of there's a nuclear Armageddon or there's, you know, like even with some climate fiction, it's like there's a big cataclysm, there's a meteor, there's, there's something that happens that's a catalyst. Yeah. Here, I think it's so much more realistic and so much more frightening because what yeah. she's hitting on is that it's not one thing. It's yeah. many things. It's it's staying on the current trajectory and not doing anything to change it. It's not, right. yeah. And it's like, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so much of what she's writing about is in fact either happened or is happening. Did we pay heed to scientists when they talked about climate change back in the 1990s? No, we fucking didn't. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Well, and, and with so, those other with those other books you're talking about, like also fantastic, but there's some big dramatic event to it that you can step back and be like, okay, well, that's not so realistic. Like, you know, the Hunger Games happening, you can be like, okay, this is definitely science fiction, but this is actually 
the parable of the sower is, I would say, a quiet story in the sense that so much happens and also nothing happens. A lot of it is a journey from point A to point B and what happens on that journey. And so you're really trapped in a good in a good and painful way in a very realistic and terrible situation where you can't step out and be like, okay, well, they're never going to be like murdering children in an arena and watching them kill each other. You're like traveling on a road when the world has kind of come to this unlivable end and there's bandits and people killing you for a thousand bucks or uh, raping you or steal like and and not bad people necessarily, but like a mother and her child who have to survive. And so it's just it's not it doesn't rely at all on being like loud and bombastic and uh, shocking. It's just like terrifyingly realistic. Right. One thing that occurred to me, well, so many fascinating things on this book. We could do, I mean, I really truly believe you could do like a whole semester long English lit seminar Mm -hmm. solely on this book and probably the next one, which I haven't read yet. But then another fascinating thing would be to take Olivia Butler's Parable the Sower and N.K. Jemison's Broken World series and read them Mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. N.K. Jemison wrote the foreword to my uh, copy of the Parable the Sower. Um, which is which is amazing in and of itself because N.K. Jemison's such an amazing writer or anything. But it was fascinating partly because she is talking about how she read the book when she was young in her 20s and then read it again when she was a little bit older and then read it in her late 40s as she's preparing to write this forward. And she's saying that she wasn't ready for this book in her 20s. Hmm. Um, and I can, I can relate to that. I can see that. I think in my twenties, I was reading Anne Rice novels <laughs> for escapism. And I think if I had tried to read Parable of the Sower, when it first came out, I was in my twenties. I think I would have been maybe like a little bored with it or be like, what's the point of this? You know, but it's interesting that she said that. And also I'm fascinated by how, when you read about Octavia Butler, apparently she was influenced by like a black uh, activism, like black power activism, but almost in like the opposite. Like she wasn't taking it and said, yeah, black power. And that's the movement for me. I'm going to write about that. It was more like she wanted to write about people in, who endured. And mm-hmm. that enduring is a form like of activism in a way. Like mm-hmm. I think, and I may be paraphrasing this, paraphrasing this very badly but what I kind of took away from some of the interviews I read of hers and this book is that idea that for a lot of people it's almost like they don't have the time for activism because they're just trying to survive yeah but that just surviving is almost like a form of activism yeah I think and, and she said stuff like that kind of in the book there were quotes yeah. and it was like we there's all these people holding on to the past but we can never go back to the past but maybe the only way to like go to any livable thing is just to like live just to survive is 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 enough (laughs) right and I think like celebrating those people who Mm -hmm. do that I mean I think it's just fascinating that she and N.K. Jemisin are like in conversation with each other Mm -hmm. like N.K. Jemisin comes after her and I I wonder like could N.K. Jemisin write the Broken Earth series, if we hadn't had Octavia Butler, not yeah, just know. as the first Black woman to win a Hugo Award, but also as just the what she wrote. 
because mm-hmm. I feel like N.K. Jemison is saying something a little different. I think mm-hmm. she also, reading interviews of her, was influenced by Black power movements and activism. But I feel like she's kind of taking it a little bit different direction. Mm-hmm. And I don't know anything more about it than to say, I guess, just that. But I feel like that would be a fascinating, you know, like conversation to have over a period of time with a group of people, like a seminar would be what are they saying and what are they what how is it different from one another but yeah I get that a piece of just N.K. Jemison I feel a little bit more like she's saying no let's break it like Mm -hmm. (laughs) like like let's actually break this and make it and maybe Octavia Butler saying that too I don't know the answer I think I feel like Octavia's is like it's broken let's remake it and NK Jemison is let's break it and remake it. But I, I had one right. more thing I wanted to to yeah. also add to what would be cool with that discussion and what you just said is with NK Jemison saying that this when she read this in her 20s, it didn't hit so hard, and you saying that it might not have for you either. I wonder if 20-year-olds who read it now, though, because they are living in a world much closer to this as a reality. So, like when you were 20, even when I was 20, like the world was still pretty like. I mean, we were still in this pretty safe, happy life is good bubble. And so I wonder if 20 year olds now, though, read it, having grown up never really with the perfect utopia, if this would actually work for them because it's closer. To, it, it's been their reality much longer than than it has ours. I don't know. I just for black Americans, you can't escape being black, right? If you're poor, you can find a way out of poverty. It's not easy. It doesn't happen all the time, but it can happen. Mm-hmm. And so if you're rich and rich and white, you can get out of problems, right? Yeah. If you live in a place that's destroyed by climate change, you just move someplace new. Yeah. For Black people in America, they can never escape being Black. Mm-hmm. So there's a level of systemic racism that is inescapable. No matter what mm-hmm. you do, there it is. Mm-hmm. I feel like in Parable of the Sower, I don't know if this was intentional, but I was really feeling that so much that within this story, although it's not really specifically about her being Black, the character is Black. There are times when she notes some racism, but she, in a way, is creating a story that is such a metaphor for being Black in America yeah. because this character can never escape the difficulty of her life. It does not matter where she yeah. goes. Whether she's in the gate or outside the gate, whether she goes to LA or Hadron's North, it's inescapable. Mm-hmm. And I don't, like I said, I don't know if it's intentional. I don't know if I'm reading into it. No, I, I think, just, yeah, that yeah. seems plausible. And also, she, it was really well done in a in a subtle way too, because it's because it's first person. It's like if you do too much of like tell it, saying this is what I'm trying to say, it can hit you in the face. But she had such subtle things in there too. Like there was a couple instances where there was like a white man who was traveling, and they were like, "Oh, you could probably get this job because they they like they like right. white people." In the, or uh, well, they may not accept us into the community, but you could probably go. So it was it was never a conversation around it, but it was like still part of the reality in this world that everybody's on the same level financially where they're at, but they were like, you know, the white guy could still be the only one who might be able to get paid. Right. Um, and in one of these cases, it was to basically be a slave driver. So it's like, um, you know, there, it was all in there, but really like woven in <laughs> nicely. There was no didactic pieces of this story. I felt. No, not at all. It was just, mm-hmm. again, the plain blunt force 
reality of her writing and her language. It's just, this is what it is. Yeah. And I guess the seed of hope, but we haven't talked about this a lot, the seed of hope within the story, beyond the fact that Lauren is a survivor, Mm -hmm. is her religion that she's creating. And so that's the (laughs) other piece I had questions for you about. Yeah. And I think we were both fascinated uh, by it. Okay. So I have so many questions. Like, what did you think about the religion she created? Why do you think it's in there? Mm-hmm. Would you want to be, <laughs> you know, like, which the, the earth seed religion, you know, yeah. Um, is that something that spoke to you at all? I just want to okay. read the very yeah. first one. This is the very first thing in the very first chapter. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Earthseed, the books of the living. I was, that blew me away mm-hmm. from the get-go. So what do you think so about all that? Let me, uh, I'm trying to remember all the questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let me, I'll, I'm just going to go in whatever order I want. I love this concept of how she has reshaped God as not somebody, not somebody or something that cares about you or that you care about. It's just, this is the reality and you either get on board and work with this God or, or you, you don't, but I, I think this God has changed was just fantastic. And that's what I loved in those opening paragraphs. And I am not a, I, I am skeptical in general, often of religion or new religions or anybody who goes in all in on something. So I did sometimes get creepy cult vibes, <laughs> yeah. but that's not their fault. But as a, I would say, let's say as a philosophy. So I'm somebody who really enjoys the philosophies of certain religions. So not necessarily the, and, and some spirituality of it, but not necessarily this like, like all in belief in all of the pieces of it, but the philosophy I can appreciate. And I loved the philosophy of this religion that she was creating. I, there was one, I mean, I have like a little quote, it's maybe kind of long, but I loved this rendering of, uh, for her of, of what God was. And so I just read this real quick. Cause I think it's, it's a lovely piece, but she it's create no images of God, except the images that God has provided. They are everywhere and everything. God is change seed to tree, tree to forest, rain to river, river to sea, uh, grubs to bees, bees to swarm from one, many, from many, one. Forever uniting, growing, dissolving, forever changing. The universe is God's self-portrait. And I just, I really loved, yeah, my, my the philosophical piece of this. And so right. I wonder, and I, I was reading some things that if you come into this as a very religious person, you feel one way about the story. And if you come in as not a very religious person, you you feel a different way about this particular piece. And so I know you have similar feelings as I do. So <laughs> neither of yeah. us are, you know, coming to this as a, a, a evangelical point of view, which might be interesting to chat about. There's another question I think you asked and I've forgotten what it is. Maybe, maybe that was it. Okay. Then I, I'll, I'll post the questions back to you. I, I had that on my, my thing too. Like, did you connect with earth seed as a religion and was it something you would have joined or like, yeah. What did that do for you in the story also? Yeah. Yeah. I did connect with it like you. And like you said, I'm not a particularly religious person. I tend to be more philosophical. And I thought it was interesting to contrast it with Buddhism, which I probably know more about Mm -hmm. than most religions. And so that 
I, I found myself thinking about it in relation to Christianity and Buddhism a lot. But I, I thought that she wrote some amazing and lovely and, and thought-provoking passages. And I, I almost wanted to take all of the first bits of every chapter and string them together into her book called Earthseed, you mm-hmm. know, because because the character is carrying around this notebook that she's mm-hmm. writing her Earthseed ideas. And some of them are so fascinating and, and so thought-provoking. So I, I did like it. I, I related to it. I thought it was a good way to connect everything going on in the book. Like it made yep. a cohesive like backdrop to the book. And another fascinating piece is that Octavia Butler said in an interview that she didn't write poetry. And these were really hard for her to do because That's she- fantastic. I know. <laughs> like, well, for not writing poetry, woman, you sure did write some great poetry. I wish yeah. I didn't write poetry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I wish I didn't write poetry as well as Octavia Butler didn't write poetry. But yeah. she was saying it was really hard for her to get started writing this book. And the only way she could kind of like start was to just- try to write these earth seed pieces. And so she started writing the earth seed pieces to get herself kind of like going into it, which mm. I thought was interesting. Not that I'm anything like as great as Octavia Butler, but I have done that myself at times when I can't get my hand handle on a piece of a story. I'll write it in verse. I'll write something in verse and it like loosens your creative brain up. So um, I thought that was kind of cool that she that she did that and shared that. You know, she didn't finish the series. She died before uh, her planned series could be completed. There were only two mm-hmm. books. And it's such, a, you know, she didn't die tragically, as far as I understand. She died of, it looks like, maybe a stroke. And then she hit her head when she fell over and she died, like, before the age of 60. It's just, but it's oh, no. in the literary yeah. world because we didn't get more Octavia Butler. And, but she said that she had to take a break from writing these books because they were so dark and so difficult for her to mm-hmm. live in that world. And which you could see, I mean, day after day to go visit that America, mm-hmm. which our America is feeling a little bleak at times right now with, you know, climate change, the pandemic, a growing disparity between haves and have nots. It's all happening. We are not yet where this story was, but it would be bleak to go live there mm-hmm. day after day. And from what I've read of the next book, it's even bleaker. Um, the New York so, Times seemed to say, though, that it was less bleak. Oh, uh, okay. When I was reading, like, what it was about, I thought, yeah. oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. 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 So that's um, another good question for our listeners, I feel like, is why is it called Parable Sower? I mean, interestingly, her dad's a Baptist preacher, right? Mm-hmm. There is a lot of stuff about the Bible in here from time to time, but the main character was literally created in a relationship. like, nah, I don't want to do my dad's Old Testament, New Testament religion. I, you know, the book of yeah. King James Version is not for me. I want to create my whole new religion. So why did the author choose to literally name it after a Christian? You know, the parable of the sower is a parable. It's the last thing in the book is a piece mm-hmm. of that from the King James Bible. Why did she do that? Like, what's Well, I wonder, I wonder if it's, you know, the parable of the sower. A sower is someone who lays seeds and whatnot. And I, I wonder if it's almost a handoff between the old religion of her father to her new religion as the sower of the new religion. Because she talks about earth seed is like, you know, meant to live among the stars. And she's, she's, also, you know, she takes seeds with her. They plant seeds right. in these new places. So seeds are a very big piece of this. But I, I almost feel like it's that she was so respectful of her father and his religions and not and his beliefs. And 
obviously she had nothing to do with the title, this fictional character, but I feel like for the author, it was almost this handoff from the old ways and her father into her and her new religion. And she is the sower. And this is the parable of her creating this new world, but it was somehow connecting the old with the new. For me, that's what, that's what it was. But I'm also curious to hear what what others think about that or yeah. maybe have read. I have another question. I have so many questions in this book. <laughs> so the main character, Lauren, she in her Earthseed religion or philosophy that she's creating, she's talking a lot about the purpose of humanity, the purpose of people, our purpose is to seed the universe, right? That we start mm-hmm. here and like a dandelion, you blow out the seeds, blow out, and then they go other places. And Octavia Butler talks about in conversations that I read about, you know, in interviews, she had that, she grew up reading sci-fi and wanting to explore the universe and being really interested in space travel, et cetera. So now here we are, we move forward and it's like, what would Octavia Butler think about the billionaires, you know? Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Putting their penises into space, both literal and figurative, you know what I mean? And it's like, what... What about, I mean, it's kind of interesting that she felt that way, the author, and then that her character's talking about that because the character Lauren is living in a world where it's hard to conceive of that even being a thing anymore because there's so few resources. It's just not even like really feasible, but yet she's still looking at life that way. I don't know. It was just a little bit discordant to me that where it's like- Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. It was to me too. Okay. And interestingly, I did not connect with that so much because everything else felt like it made sense. And that was just like this thing out of left field. Like she's like, I've got this deep philosophical religion about humanity and our goal is to live among the stars. And you're just like, huh? I'm fine with it. But I also, in general, I, I, I hate this concept that we have these people spending billions of dollars to colonize a dead rock instead of investing that to save this incredible planet that we have. Right. And so like a literal Eden. Yes. We literally were given like the most amazing thing on the planet. Our cultures are beautiful. Our landscapes are beautiful. And everybody's like, let's destroy that and go live on something that only looks like the Sahara desert. It's like, I really struggle with that. And I, I think, you know, this isn't Octavia Butler's fault. No, thank you. I'm a homebody. I'm an earth homebody, but like, right. it's not Octavia Butler's fault or Lauren's fault. But I, I mean, obviously they don't realize that we're all reading this now through the lens where we're like, you know, like, fuck space travel and billionaires <laughs> and like, <Okay>. you know, <laughs> and so that was the one piece of the religion that I was just like, that was kind of out of left field for me. And every time it came up, I was like, oh, this is weird. Maybe it's there because it's the piece that gives people hope and religion has to, I don't know. I mean, maybe a piece of religion is to give people hope that there's something like better or something that they're working toward other than. Yeah. And I'm also coming to that concept from a like extreme place of privilege where I've lived in places with fresh air and green grass and I can travel all over the world to these beautiful places. So for Lauren, she's only ever lived in this community surrounded by walls and glass. So earth isn't to her what earth is to me. So also I was thinking about that. The hope she feels for the stars is of course different because I I know a different planet than she does. And so, yeah. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's such a fascinating book. So many layers. I mean, it's like an onion that you just peel and peel and peel. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad we read it. I feel Me like too. 
there are books that come along where you feel like you're a better human being because you read it. This is mm-hmm. one, but also like Schindler's List, I could only see one time. I will only read Parable the Sober once. <laughs> I don't yeah. think that I can take it again. It no. was um, not by any stretch a light read. Buckle in if you open this book also from page one to just, you know, you're you're just sort of have your heart rattled from the get-go. Yeah. But I, I like you said, I think it's one that if you are reading and writing in this genre, you have to have read this to see, you know, every once in a while we come across one of those books that were like, this needs, especially if you're a writer or even just a fan of the genre, this must be something that you read at some point in your life. I would say this is one of those. It should be in every curriculum in high school. It's crazy that it's not. It's absolutely like a crime that it's not. Yeah. I mean, there's about a hundred books you could take out of the curriculum and not miss which that's this whole side quest we could have a conversation about. Like people complain yeah. about what books are being taught. It's like, why are we reading anything that was that was even written prior to 19, what, probably 90 or 2000? I mean, literally there's so many books yeah. that are more current that speak to issues that are more relevant. But well, anyway. yeah, I mean, if, imagine if high schoolers are reading Parable of the Sower versus The Scarlet Letter. Also yeah, the things you. you're going to learn yes. about your community, about other people, about- right the importance of taking care of each other and the planet versus, I don't know, having had an affair long ago, like, yeah, this is a missed opportunity. And yeah, that's what I I was trying to say. I was trying to think of a book that I'd throw out. That's, that's one, which by the way, I actually really like Nathaniel Hawthorne. And I remember really loving that book in high school, but yeah, in a modern context, it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You could take books like that out of a high school curriculum, put in, Octavia mm-hmm. Butler and the world would be better for it. Yep. Definitely. So glad we read it. Uh, we Me need too. to talk about the drink. So Natalie, what are we drinking? <laughs> We're drinking the strongest drink possible. We're drinking. <laughs> here's, so let's talk about the alcohol in the book. There's really not a lot of alcohol. She mentions from here and there that people have like stills, but in her like little Walden community, there's really, I don't think any alcohol drinking going on, Mm-mm. Um, which is kind of interesting in itself because maybe something that Octavia Butler might've gotten a little wrong is there something in the future that's bleak is people are going to find a way to get drunk. I mean, you give people a will, there is a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there'd be a lot more like in Wool by Hugh Howie, they have their uh, their gin that they make in the bathtub, the yeah. tub gin, you know, which made a lot of sense to me that they take some kind of prop and use a little bit of it to make alcohol that even yeah. in the most dire circumstances where people are starving, they will find a way to get higher drunk because... Uh, Octavia Butler talks about these these two constants, hierarchies and human culture and change, right? Yeah. And fascinating. Well, another constant is human desire to get high and drunk. So I would add that into the third constant Octavia Butler is people will find a way to um, kill their brain cells in order to yeah. not have to like... <laughs> or, or numb, to numb. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. this is a world... Or they would be numbing, which they are. Yes. They're doing a lot of drugs. So right, we could have right, just right. done drugs for this episode. <laughs> and there, but we uh, didn't. We haven't talked about pyromania. Pyromania is a big piece because the newest yeah. drug on the block during the time of the book is uh, the story. Lauren's story is a drug that makes people kind of get off on pyromania, on, on uh, mm-hmm. setting things on fire. 
So when they run out of things to set on fire, on fire and so it's really bleak but we're calling ours pyro potable it basically it's a glass bowl and like a long island iced tea but leave out the tea part it's pretty much every alcohol you can imagine in a glass because this book i think requires a stiff drink Mm -hmm. Um, absolutely yeah this world this world that she created requires a stiff drink i don't want to live there i don't either i don't either yeah well Let's hope that it doesn't get yeah. that bleak. Yeah, but. let's hope. But at least we have each other and we have we books. We do. And we have alcohol still. We, so. have, we do. So this is how we survive yeah. the 21st century. <laughs> and next month, we get to talk about your book, Season of the Dragon. So for those of you who are listening to this episode, do not miss our March episode. We will be talking about Natalie's new book. And it's, we're so excited about it. Releases March 1st. I am getting beyond excited, Rob, and I've done so many happy dances. Just, I bet it's a big deal. Yeah. You work on something a long time and you just hope it's not pirated before it actually releases. Fair. (laughs) Happened to me multiple times. But anyway, it's like, yeah, I um, am looking forward to talking with you about it, Rob, and getting your thoughts on uh, the world of Minald and. Quinn and a very different sort of dragon story. Cannot wait to talk about it. So thank you for tuning in listeners. Let us know what you thought of Parable of the Sower and don't forget to check out Natalie's book, which will release on March 1st. And we will talk about sometime in the later part of March. Yes. All right. Cheers, nerds. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the fun with your friends and family. Want a recipe for a cocktail you heard here? You can find recipes as well as show notes, episode transcripts, and helpful links on our website, tipsynerdsbookclub.com. And as always, join us next week for a new episode of Libations and Geeking Out. Cheers.